This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I also am Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies, which will be relevant to our topic today because we're going to discuss Christology, and I've done something a little bit unusual because what I've done is I've brought in a New Testament guy over here, Justin Bass, and a systematic theology person over here, Scott Harrell, uh, both teaching at the seminary, to discuss in a cross-disciplinary kind of way issues related to Christology, but not Christology in the way you normally think about it. Uh, we're not talking about which passage, what are the passages where Jesus, you know, confesses who he is or the text says he's the Son of God, those more direct passages, but kind of the indirect passages and the indirect uh, ways in which uh, Scripture uh, reveals who Jesus is. But to, to, but to start us off, I'm going to start us off on the theological foot. So, so Scott, welcome. Uh, you're a no, veteran you. of the table. We're, we're glad to have you back. Um, uh, and you, you, you teach Christology here at the school? I do, yes. Okay. And, and when you do it in a context of systematic theology, uh, what kinds of things are our students covering? Well, I do like to start with our Lord's humanity, mm -hmm. but also you're, you're talking about the two natures mm -hmm. side by side. That's so right. The beauty and mystery of holding those together, I think, is, is fascinating. Mm -hmm. But of course, typically we look at the passages mm -hmm. where the deity of our Lord is made clear, both whether in his own self-profession, which is very rare, mm -hmm. we take Johannine exactly. passages, yep. uh, but then the high Christologies, John 1, mm -hmm. Colossians <coughs> chapter 1, 15 and on. Hebrews chapter 1, these high Christologies that really do declare this one as the exact manifestation of, of God. Mm -hmm. And so putting that together with our Lord's humanity, you've got, you've got this almost paradox, but not finally, mm -hmm. of humanity in all its mystery and beauty and deity together in the one personal consciousness of our Lord. Okay, now let's just to cover our bases uh, quickly run through some of these texts. Obviously, John 1, and particularly John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, um, is one such text. You alluded to, I think, Hebrews 1 3, the exact manifestation of God. Later on in that chapter, we've got Jesus sitting on a throne. You talked about Colossians 1. Uh, and which puts Jesus on what I call the creator side of the creator-creature yeah. divide, which in the context of a Jewish monotheism, if there's only one God and there's only one creator, and you say Jesus is associated with the creation rather than being a creature, you've shoved him onto mm -hmm. the deity side of things. Fair enough. Am I, am I, will I pass the exam? And if, if you don't get it in chapter one, you get it in chapter two. In him, all the fullness of, of deity, deity dwells, dwells in bodily exactly. form. Good Theotics. text. Yeah. And, in Romans and, 1, I mean, Paul right. makes clear that oh, yeah. we worship and serve the Creator mm -hmm. rather than the creature. And right. So Paul 
would not worship any creature, no matter how exalted that Yeah, now is. that begins to build a bridge to what we're eventually going to be talking about, and that is those kinds of things that Jesus does or that he is the object of without saying that point to that. So I'm going yep. to put a save button on that one because that's, that's one of the places we're, we're going. But uh, now the other thing that I think um, befuddles people, I think that would be a good word to use, is this combination of how the human and divine work together. Um, we, um, we've just come out of uh, a discussion um, on our campus in the context of a chapel in which the discussion was made, you know, did Jesus learn math? Um, uh, terrible question, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think even that is, is something of a mystery. What we, what we can say very clearly is what is not the case. Jesus, well, there was a guy named Apollinarius who, <laughs> who wanted to say Jesus was divine on the inside, his mind, his higher soul, you might say, uh, but then human on the outside, kind of a coconut, God on the inside, human on the outside. And already Gregory of Nazianzus and others were saying, this is around 380, mm-hmm. no, if what, what is not assumed, that is what the Son did not assume fully mm-hmm. in his human nature, is not saved, is not healed. Mm-hmm. So Apollinarianism was condemned as a heresy early on. But then came Nestorius, mm-hmm. who, who wanted to preserve the full deity and the full humanity of our Lord. But he kind of put those in a body. So you have sort of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm-hmm. in one in one body, and and that seemed so at I'm least God. allegedly. No, I'm not. I'm God. So, well, no, I'm one not. time he's God, <laughs> the other's schizo, human. Schizo yeah, Christ. Yeah. And so so that too was rejected about uh, four thirty. And the one objecting to that forcefully was another man named Eutyches, uh-huh. who, who was mixing up the nature. So the divine became human, and the human became divine, and the church said, no, that's not right either. So we arrive at Ephesus, the Council of Ephesus in 431. Mm-hmm. More clearly, the famous Council of, of, of Chalcedon, mm-hmm. or the Definitio Fide, the faithful definition, in 451, mm-hmm. where we come to, the language was not used there, but what we call... Here's a big word, hypostatic union. Oh, wow. Meaning infinite nature of God together with the very finite nature of humanity together, not confused and not separable in the one person of Christ. Yeah, and so we end up with the the interesting questions like, um, well, and then alongside this we have texts. Jesus grew in wisdom, Mm. you know, in Luke 2. We have... Uh, we have the idea of Jesus suffering a death. Okay, God doesn't yeah. die, those kinds of things. So, um, If I can add another wonderful theological word that Scott Harrell taught me okay. in Trinitarianism, one that stuck with me forever was perichoresis. Uh, yeah. Pronouncing that correct? Perichoresis. I love that with the mutual indwelling of the Son and the Father and the Spirit in one, in one another. I think that's just, yeah. it's just yeah. such a beautiful teaching. Well, even and we w- see it in John 17, mm-hmm. I and the Father and the Father's in me. I think Hebrews is extraordinary because chapter one is all about the deity of our Lord. Even sure, angels are absolutely. Chapters two, three, four, and up to five, ten. You know, he's tempted in all manner like as we. He was proved faithful as our servant, as our high priest, and all of this. You have you have them put together, and yet there's no final theology of explaining this to us. 
That's what's given us 2,000 years of fascination. <laughs> That's why you have a job, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, if I get it right in our, in our podcast. So, yeah, well, uh, yes. Yeah, so it's good. Well, they'll be writing you later. They'll send me the cards and letters, and I'll there just pass them on. But do you agree that all the, all the Trinitarian theology is a footnote to the Chalcedonian and the, the Cappadocian Fathers? Well, I wouldn't say that. I would say uh, in one way— Chalcedon is a footnote to Nicaea, or mm. the Confession of Trinity. Jesus really is God, like the Father is God. There's not two gods, there's one God. Right. And yet, Father and Son are in real relationship. So this has been interesting at the ETS, uh, the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, the annual one just a month ago as we're speaking right now. Trinity was the main topic. Mm. Does God have one mind, one will, one action, or can we say... With Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's three wills, three minds, three activities that, as each glorifies and loves the other. And I th- think I want to say yes. Both, <laughs> yes, both yes. have to be true right, right. if you have true Trinitarianism. Interesting. Yeah, so then Chalcedon is then how is it – if Jesus is really God, how is he human? Hmm. How is he man? Mm-hmm. And there's Chalcedon. So, so, so you take a semester. I take it to go through this, or a good part of a semester to go through oh, this. Oh, surely, for love it. Yes, and, uh, and, and one of the greatest classes here. And you other put than Luke, you. Luke and Acts, and you and you put, <laughs> and I'll pass on that. And and you'll uh, and you and you associate help students associate passages with concepts that have been discussed and the way this has been articulated philosophically. And we didn't, we stayed mm-hmm. out of the Trinitarian language of the the. You know the usian and homo usian and all that kind of stuff sure. that comes earlier. Um, uh, that's a part of this. So there's a very technical conversation, particularly on trying to nail down um, the divine side of things and how it interacts with the human. I think mm-hmm. is what often happens. Mm-hmm. And then I think what happens to people popularly is is that they create this um, and articulate this Jesus in which obviously the the superhuman or the or the divine features almost overwhelm yes. the human side. Yeah, I was a missionary in Latin America for 18 years in Sao Paulo, taught right by the Pontifical University. In Latin thought, very often, the deity of Christ is raised so high mm-hmm. that I can't – he's God. He's not going to sin. He doesn't really understand me. But Mary, his mother, really does. Mm. So I'll talk to her or the saints, mm-hmm. as in more classical Catholicism. They understand me, and Mary will talk with her son, and her son won't deny his mother uh, what I request. So Jesus is almost taken out of the equation. Mm. He's set aside as so fully God that – he doesn't understand me, and I don't understand him. So I'll go through the saints. So the marriages. kind of transcendence that often comes in a theology that has a high view of God that almost removes him from yes. being in touch with us. Practically so. Come, comes into place. And that actually is not a biblical faith, is it? Yeah, no, not at all. They're completely uh, missing. I mean, you think of Hebrews and mm-hmm. John, which has the highest Christology. We also see Jesus as the most human. I mean, he yeah. learned obedience through what he suffered in mm-hmm, Hebrews mm-hmm. chapter 5. And we also see in John how he, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is clearly getting tired, learning. You know, he's, he's very clearly presented as a human in John, yeah. even though he, in the beginning, yes. was Word, was the Word, and, and it, the mm-hmm. Word was God. So, Well, all that is to lay a groundwork for the rest of what we want to talk about, which is thinking about Christology kind of turned on its head, and to think about if I'm a person who walks up to Jesus and, and what I see is just kind of another human being, 
Okay, I don't have this theological understanding. How does how does the scripture provoke my thinking to think about who it is that Jesus really is? And granted, as you mentioned, there are a few places where it just outright says it. There are even fewer places where Jesus himself outright says it. And as you noted, those are predominantly present in spots in in. Uh, in the Gospel of John, and some of them are said by Jesus, mm-hmm. and some of those are said to Jesus, and he accepts it. Perhaps mm-hmm. the most famous of those is um, is the words of the doubting Thomas, "My Lord, mm-hmm. my God." Yeah. At the end of that narrative, so there are there are there are a wide variety of ways in which this is done. But my point is is that Scripture is literally loaded mm. with other ways to do yes. this yes. Yes. that we often don't think about. And that often are, uh, in many ways, just as revealing. So I want to talk about those for a second, and and uh, talk about it from a New Testament side on the one hand, and then theologically reflect on it on the other. So I'm going to just go through kind of a list of texts, and so let's start here. Um, perhaps my one of the ones that shows up earliest in a gospel narrative is uh, the scene in Mark two, hmm. where Jesus uh, is confronted with a paralytic. Who has come to have Jesus heal him? And uh, I, I love this. This mm. this is one of my favorite passages in all great scripture. Story. It's a great story. I mean, the, it's crowded. They can't get in. I mean, everything about it says this isn't happening. So the it's creative the, the the creative group you know climbs up on the roof, uh, lowers him down in front of Jesus. I mean, I I can imagine you know watching the. Whatever descended from above, digging into down the roof, digging as they dug into the roof and cut cut out the way to drop down, and, and they put it before him. And what Jesus says to the guy hmm. is not be healed or get up and walk. Okay, he says to him, "Your sins are forgiven." Your sins are forgiven. And then there are the theologians in the audience. Now you always got to be <laughs> aware of theologians Easy. in the audience. Okay, because the theologians in the audience. They immediately pick up on what Jesus has, has actually done. They get what we call the cultural script. They get what's going on here, and their reaction is, he can't do that. And why can't he do it? Only God can do it. Only Isaiah God 43. can forgive sin. Yeah. Yeah. But you got a problem, okay? This is why I love this, okay? How do you see forgiveness of sins? Okay? You ever thought about that for a second? How do you see forgiveness of sins? It's difficult. Okay? I, I mean, Good point. I mean, you're a theologian, right? Sort of invisible, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? I don't think you can see that. Oh, well, there they went. You know, <laughs> see you later. Glad you took off. You know, oh yeah, Jesus did that. No, so you can't see forgiveness of sins. He's making a claim, and a divine claim at that, mm-hmm. that you actually cannot see. You can't verify in the way, particularly our empirical world would verify it, right? Mm-hmm. And and so he does this. He asks a question, and the question is, uh, is you know, um, uh, what's harder to say, your sins are forgiven, <laughs> or get up and walk? Now, you know, uh, this, we're approaching final exams week, right? This is a great question <laughs> to ask a student on a graduating exam, which is easier to, and and it's a little bit of a trick question, right? Because on the one hand, pretty hard to say get up and walk unless you can heal somebody, right? That's that's high up there on the ladder. And on the other hand, if you say your sins are forgiven, that's actually one area pretty easy. 
because no one can test to see if it's happened, yeah. right? So like I can get away. I can get away with saying that. Hmm. Although if I said to you, Scott, your sins are forgiven. I mean, I know you're. I, I wouldn't. I know be you wouldn't be too, too comfortable, right? <laughs> and so, so, so there's something going on here. And then Jesus, just to, I love it. He's got. He, he comes around and he says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, mm. I say to you, get up and walk. Yeah. Show me, show you something visible to prove the invisible. It's exactly right. That's exactly what he's doing. He's showing you something that you can see that's difficult to do and that in the minds of the audience would take some type of transcendent power to accomplish. And it becomes the verification for something you can't see. I call this a PowerPoint. Okay, all right. He's making a point yeah. about his power. Okay, it's going to be visibly distinct. And so when this guy gets up and walks, his walk talks. And it says, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, in going through all that, we can't forget where we started, which is with our theologians, our blessed mm-hmm. theologians. I say, Don't give, I say, Now, don't give the Pharisees too hard a time here. Okay, all right, because. Mm-hmm. One of the ironies of the Gospels is, is that sometimes the observations that the theologians make, even as Pharisees, is correct. You put that all together, what is that passage now telling you? Mm-hmm. I ask the theologian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think somewhere on the same level as, as the theologians are the demons in Mark chapter 1. Oh, wait, who wait, seem wait, to wait. Get oh, it. Yeah, they also get it right. <laughs> they, they get it a lot earlier yeah, yeah. than the rest. Fair enough. So they're the Christology of demons, even in chapter 1, what are the disciples and others who hear demons saying, you know, who are you, son of God, that have come to cast us into the pit or whatever else? Yeah. I mean, several times in Mark. So that's prefacing even Mark two. Right. The supernatural world got it right before the Pharisees began to try and to And so it notice out what's too. happening here. Some of the very opponents who are objecting to what Jesus is doing in an ironic kind of way are making a testimony and revealing who Jesus mm-hmm. is as he's doing the variety of things that he's doing. And I think that yeah. question is key all throughout Mark, because we see it repeated where the Pharisees say there, Who is this? Right. Who forgives sins? Oh, but right. the question, yeah. who is this? That I think that's what the story is supposed to enact from us, from from the audience there, oh, but true. also from the reader. Who is this? Who can do this? Right. And I like cor- to I like to parallel it with uh, when I've taught on this. I paralleled it right next to each other. It's powerful when you do it. With uh, I can't remember the exact verse, but it's in Second Samuel twelve when Nathan gives the great parable to David, uh-huh. and then David falls on his face mm-hmm. after he says, "You are the man," and he says, "Don't worry, David." Yahweh has forgiven your sins. Mm-hmm. He says, the Lord has forgiven mm-hmm. your sins. And you wow. parallel that with what Jesus says. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, but he says, the Lord has forgiven your sins. You're already seeing something different with Jesus than the prophets of, of old. That's, That's right. Good. And That's that, and that actually comes into another point that comes when the miracle stories come up in the New Testament and goes something like this, that, that there are really three ways in which um, miracles are performed in Jewish materials. This isn't just talking about New Testament. And it says mm. they are mediators of numinous power. Numin- uh, numinous power is transcendent power, pointing to to something supernatural that's at work. They are mediators of numinous power, which means that they use an object or some type of thing to invoke the gods to act, some type of formula, something like that is the way that would work. Magical formula would fit into this category. The second category is they are petitioners of numinous power. They pray to God that God would act, and he acts. Mm-hmm. So they're healers, but they're not direct healers, if mm-hmm. you will. Okay. The third category is called they are bearers of numinous power. 
And if you actually study the Jewish materials carefully, you will find that the bulk of healings that take place in the context of Judaism belong in those first two categories. There are very few people who act directly and kind of bypass the appeal to God, either through prayer or through the use of an object that he has somehow designated as the means by which to do this, to mediate this healing. And the observations made, this is by a book by Eric Evie called The Jewish Context of Jesus' Miracles. And the point that he makes is the bulk of the gospel miracles are Jesus is a bearer of numinous power. He doesn't pray before the miracle happens, and he doesn't use, generally speaking, an object through which to perform the miracle. He simply speaks. And it happens. It's the eyes. That That's exactly it's right. Ego. And it, and in and in Mark two, of course, the authority is directly stated as being His, mm-hmm. in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, "If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican." Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. You know, I would say that's true in Mark 1 as mm-hmm. well. I mean, there were there were exorcists, and mm-hmm. Jewish people yeah. were famous for being that. But it's his own power, and in an instant, no formulas, no fees. That's right. Demon be gone. It, it is his own authority that casts them out. So it, it, it it's the right same idea. Two. So, and so we the, see him commanding the wind and the waves. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that was that the other path, that was the other passage yeah. I was going to go through. Yeah. yeah. Because now, okay, we've we've mentioned demons. Okay. And we've mentioned this paralytic guy who's gotten a healing. Now we're talking about the disciples. Mm-hmm. The disciples are looking at what's going on. They see him walk on the uh, calm the wind and the waves. And who is and, this? And who is this? Who's able to calm the wind and the waves? And if you know your Old Testament. You know who's in charge of the wind and the yeah. waves. God Psalm, is. Psalm 107. Exactly right. So, uh, mm-hmm. so, that, so there are all these cultural scripts is what we call them, these, these embedded ideas in which God is associated with certain kinds of activity that Jesus is performing without invoking directly God as a separate figure. Um, and it's showing mm-hmm. who he yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's not a you know, I call it the, the non Muhammad Ali approach. It isn't going around saying, you know, I am God, I am pretty. I'm great. Okay, yeah. all right. But it's 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 in the act I'm doing i I'm doing God stuff. What does that say about who I am? I'm doing things that only God can do. That's right. Mm-hmm. Another passage that goes along the same lines, and we're going to come up to a break, so I may not get all the way through this, but another passage that goes along the same lines is John 9, you know, the healing of the blind man. There's mm-hmm. no yeah. blind person healed in the Old Testament, yep. okay? One of the signs of the eschaton is that blind people are going to be healed. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is something God does. When the objection comes, you know, the person who did this, we, we don't think he's theologically orthodox, is basically the, the objection. And the blind man goes, look, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you, you can raise your claim. All I know is I can see, yeah. you know. We've never heard of anyone healing someone born blind. Exactly right. Say in the and then when there's in the backdrop the fact that this is associated with a, with um, uh, in some cases you've got healings going on on the Sabbath as well, you had that dimension, and the Jewish belief was God doesn't help someone who violates this, the Lord's day, okay, boom, you've got another dilemma on your hands. Uh, let me Let me go to another one. This is a fun one. Uh, this is uh, the disputes on the Sabbath. Okay, um, and I think to set the table for this, we just need to sit back and think through um, what the Sabbath day is. Okay, um, I mean, how in one sense, how far back in the biblical story does the Sabbath go? Well, right, you go first chapter, first chapter, chapter, chapter two, verse. First few verses. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're Genesis. in Genesis one and two, right? We've got the week. God rests on the seventh day. That becomes the basis for having the Sabbath. So that's that's an interesting starting point. Um, who's responsible for telling Israel that the Sabbath is important? Okay, God is right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ten Commandments, pretty important set of commandments. Sabbath in there. Yeah. Sure. Okay, yep. there it mm-hmm. is. So you got that one. So there's just there's just lots of ways in which the Sabbath. I actually think this is one that escapes us, because for us the Sabbath is not a big deal anymore. I mean we don't mm-hmm. we don't think about it enough and how it functions theologically. But for the Jews at the time of Jesus, the Sabbath was something willing to die for. Yeah, and it was and it was it was a distinctive marker of Judaism exactly. to have this day of rest, a med- temple. So so you're talking about and, and in one sense it's it's the Lord's day. I mean it's the it's the day that you set aside. To rest, but also it was it was set aside and designed to be a day not only of rest but also of reflection about who God is, etc. And and so it's the Lord's day. So, so we so we get these disciples roaming down the road, right, and coming down, and they, and they're they're plucking grain. Okay, looks looks pretty innocent to me. I mean, right? I mean, plucking. I mean, people. Need to eat. I've done it, right? So, I've yeah. done plucking. I don't know if I've, I haven't thought about on plucking grain on the Sabbath, but no, no, so it looks pretty innocent, right? And there's our theologians are present again, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they show up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, spying on that freedom they have. In spying Christ. on that freedom they have. Well, yeah, and uh, although I'm not sure they even they maybe they recognize they have that freedom in Christ already or not, but whether they do or not, they they issue a. A little protest. A fatwa. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, so, and and the protest is. Well, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Yeah, you can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't pluck grain on the Sabbath, right? Okay, yeah. so again, who are you? Uh, to do it's this? interesting. Actually, mm-hmm. we get two Sabbath controversies. Your mention of healing. Put, uh, there are actually two events back to back. There's the plucking of grain on the Sabbath, followed by a healing on the Sabbath. Okay, you can't do that. There's a wonderful passage. In the Mishnah, um, it's Sanhedrin seven two, and it's called the forty less one. It's the thirty nine things the second century A.D. Jewish tradition said you cannot do on the Sabbath. Okay, and and uh, threshing is is in the list, uh, plucking's in the list, that kind of thing. So they've definitely violated that part of the of the deal. So so Jesus responds. 
Okay. For this one, we probably ought to go to Matthew 12 because Matthew 12 gives more examples. Ooh, that's the sharp one. Okay. All right. And there, and they come in three, and it comes. I say this is four responses, but there really are three and then one. Okay. So the first is David, right? And what can what what does David do with his men? They, they eat, eat the showbread in the, the temple. And, and Jesus explicitly says they eat the showbread, which is not permitted to eat. Yeah. Okay? So that's the first. Except for priests. Mm. Except for yeah. priests. Okay? So, okay. So, there's, so there's an example within the Scripture. And I'm assuming that in the background here, and maybe this is a bad assumption, but I think it's a decent one, because there wasn't a lightning bolt or something that came down, because they survived that violation of the law – that that's supposed to give the objectors pause about understanding what's going on in Scripture. Okay. Second example is – second example is, I believe, the exhortation out of the prophets that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, if I'm not mistaken. Hosea. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. So there's a prophetic reason, perhaps. The third example is – That's the big one. Well, the third one is the working in the temple, right? Don't they work on the temple? Oh, you're talking Matthew 12? Yeah, I'm talking Matthew 12, right? So the third one is, is, um, is working on the, on the Sabbath. And then the last one is in a category unto itself. Absolutely. Okay. And it says – you've got the Bible open. Yes, yeah, you got – And they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that – so he could both talk and see, and this was the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. I, I so think, the I think accusation, and I think it's every time Jesus does a healing, he does it. If if we're told what day it is, it's, it's on, on the Sabbath. Sabbath. That's wow. right. It's very wow. intentional. Yeah, that's right. And the in the fourth response, I think at the, we're at the at the beginning of chapter twelve. I think we're dealing with the uh, uh, the grain fields. The grain fields, and I think the fourth response is in the grain field passages, and the Son of Man is. Lord of the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Sabbath. Now, yes. the, way, the, way, I read, eight, the okay. way I read this, okay, I got three reasons that come from Scripture that should give you pause that not every time this happens, you got a problem, okay? Mm. But then, and I'm going to use a card analogy, I apologize. There is <laughs> the card, the joker that you play at the end that, that wins the hand, okay? And the joker that's being played is the Son of Man. And the joke in the Joker is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, here's the question. Who has the authority to be Lord over the day that is the Lord's? That's right. right. Okay. And this just happens to be one of the sayings that even the most critical of scholars agree Jesus said. That's right. Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So so you've got that. You're You're, you know, so that's another one. Okay. So look at what we've got. We've got forgiveness of sins. We've got healing on the Sabbath. We've got a claim of authority over the Sabbath. We've got a claim of authority over how the creation operates in the calming of the winds and the waves. Hush, be still. Yeah, hush, be still. So, so we were building all these little, little categories along the way. We could add bridegroom. The fact that he, Jesus, presents himself as the bridegroom. Okay. He also presents hmm. himself as um, the shepherd of Israel, mm-hmm. and so we see the 
those titles and those the image of bridegroom and shepherd is very specific to the Old Testament of Absolutely. Yahweh of the God mm-hmm. of Israel. Although on that one, there's a could be an ambiguity because David is presented as a shepherd who shepherds a person as a king. So you could so some of these some of these. I, I the new David, that, the new David that's, that's right. to come. Play with an ambiguity Definitely. between the human category for which it is associated and the divine category out of which it also mm-hmm. could be associated. I think so, it's all of them coming together. That's what yeah. makes it so incredible of what's being applied. Let to me Jesus. let me give you another one. This is this is actually one of my favorites because I think this is one's really subtle. Jesus is gathered at the Last Supper. Okay. Oh, it's one of my favorites. Okay. You know I use this one. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is this is fun. Okay, now what kind of a meal is this? We know from the synoptics it is a Passover meal. Passover meal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cultural script. Passover, designated feast out of the Torah, prescribed as to how Israel is supposed to observe it. Okay. Also prescribed for what event it connects to. Okay. It is a retelling of the time of the 10th plague Hmm. when death passed over, okay, and out of the backside of that last plague came the liberation of the nation Mm -hmm. for which they are grateful, okay? So all that's in place. So Jesus gathers and gathers for Passover meal, and he says, guys, you have heard it said unto you we're supposed to celebrate a Passover, but today I'm telling you we are going to reconfigure this imagery. Surprise. That's right. You're going to reconfigure this <laughs> After 1,400 years. After, and, and, and so now these elements that you've been associating with something else are now going to be associated with me. with me and my death. Here's the question. Who has the right to change a Torah national feast and redefine all the liturgy mm-hmm. associated with it? Mm-hmm. What kind of a person is that? Okay, and so I asked my theologian. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> and if you remember, what, I, no. yeah, go ahead. What's going on here? What, what, what well, would you say? it is the New Testament in my blood. We have a quarter of the Bible that has something to do with this. That's exactly this right. Is so a new covenant, Jeremiah's new promised covenant, uh-huh. at least is partially now right being fulfilled. That's right. Go to the 12 tribes. Now we'll learn soon. It goes to all the nations. Okay, so that's how the symbolism changes. But the, mm. uh, the question alongside that I'm asking is, what gives the Jesus the right oh, well, to walk in and alter all of that? He is the Son of Man, not in the sense of Ezekiel being called Son of Man, but Daniel 7, mm-hmm. this other one who will be given a kingdom. Mm-hmm. Surely pieces were beginning to come together at this point. And right. he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's both. He's the exalted, yeah. vindicated Son of Man of Daniel 7. He's also this suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that will bear the sins of Israel. And so it's, this is how... God is going to bring about his new exodus. And so Jesus is exercising this kind of liturgical authority, and he – let me ask it this way. Who has the right to change what God has revealed? God. Exactly. And and the greatest feast day, the greatest event. Mm -hmm. I mean – I mean, the way we look back at the cross in the New Testament is the exodus of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So here's another – I I do think it's a very subtle – Kind of Christological claim, but I but I think it's a 
interesting. I think it has it all. Christological claim. It's right in the middle of everything that Jesus is doing. He's explaining the whole point of why he's come to the earth. He's taken the symbol of what it means for Israel to be a delivered nation in the act of deliverance that God has. And we've created now the second and ultimate deliverance out of this. And he now takes that same feast Mm -hmm. and transforms all the imagery in relationship to himself. And the only way that can happen legitimately is if two things happen. If he has the authority to do it, which points to who he is, and then he executes what's being depicted in such a way that he's there to be on the other side of it, which of course is what the crucifixion and resurrection are all yeah, about. Yeah, well, the Paschal Lamb. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, I almost think I almost think this passage. I'd like to hear what you think on this, but I think it almost speaks to Jesus Himself, His own consciousness of what He was absolutely came to do. <laughs> absolutely. I think this passage more than any other, and especially because of how historically solid it is, because we don't just have it in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. We have this saying and this entire mm-hmm. account we have in 1 Corinthians yeah, chapter absolutely. 11. So, I mean, if, if we have any authentic words of Jesus in the Bible, it's these. This is my body. Yeah. This is my blood. This is the new covenant. I mean, this shows that he was thinking of himself not just as the Son of Man, but as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Yeah, and you if know. we apply the, the, the standard kinds of rules that get applied to critical, critical things like this when it comes to Jesus, we've got an epistle that says it. We've yeah. got the tradition out of the Gospels so, that says it. So it's, it's what's called multiply attested. It right. isn't just that it's told four times. That's right. It's told from distinct independent sources. And so early. In doing so, and very, very early in doing so. So it's so there's all that that's going on. This is one there Bart Ehrman well. struggled with, you remember? Yeah, exactly. Discussion. Yeah. So it's so, so, so again, and, and, and here's, here's what I think is going on. Here's why I think these categories are important. Um, and Scott, I'd love your reaction to this. And that is, you know, we were joking about this in the break. Um, if I walked into the room and said, I'm God, okay, you're a theologian. What would you do? What well, would I would you? ask for the white coats <laughs> and, uh, and the chains. Yeah, exactly. And, and, okay. So, so how do you do it? I mean, because obviously the assumption in these texts is he has every right to say that, okay? Yeah. But how is he going to be heard yeah. for saying that? I think it's so profound the way our Lord comes into this world. Of course, Muslims say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God and Mm -hmm. things like that. I like to turn around in class and say, all right, let's talk about it. What if Jesus had said, he is God, you're to worship me? Of course, we've got Philippians 2 that says he didn't do that, Right? didn't grasp equality with God in the sense of claiming his rights. He's chewed them. And how, how fascinating, how biblical, how beautiful that is. I mean, he's... He's even deflecting, are you the Christ, and questions like that. He pushes them aside. He won't answer those because he wants to define it himself. But if somebody's coming down to say they're God, you know, the old C.S. Lewis stuff, but uh-huh. you'll lock them up or they're crazy as an egg uh-huh. or whatever else it might be. But, but the profoundness of Jesus indirectly showing hundreds of times that he is Messiah, but there's an evocation of the disciples and others who come to say, well, who are you? Mm-hmm. That's what the crowds were saying. And mm-hmm. there's something about Jesus just, that just fascinates and pulls us in to say, wow, I, I don't understand this, but this is not just a spirit-filled man. There is an authority, a reality of this one that, that goes beyond anything human yes. we have ever seen. 
So he, he attracts as like a magnet for those God calls to himself. Mm-hmm. There is a beauty there. I, I think in the mystery of no one comes to me unless the Father draws him, and yet whosoever will may come. There is this, there's this beauty that, you know, somebody like a Friedrich Nietzsche or a cousin Sakis, they can, they can understand the gospel and reject it. And yet a Helen Keller or G.K. Chesterton or T.S. Eliot, they hear and there's something that draws them. So I, I actually see behind the mystery of our Lord presenting himself a kind of sovereignty of the Lord at the same time. Mm-hmm. He draws, he attracts. Even with his humility. Yeah, with that beauty, those uh, that are his own. Yeah, I call it the combination of two things. I, I think there's an invitation and there's a kind of enticement yeah. at the same time in which, um, in which uh, you know, he, he, he isn't compelling it. It's, it, mm-hmm. it, is a, um, it is a disclosure Okay, that invites a response. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, kind of a subtle sovereignty behind it all. That's yes. right. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Right, right. So there's just a fascination of all that together. Yep. And I think this is the greatest question of Christology, of early Christology, is how this crucified man who never wrote mm. anything, who was, wasn't a conqueror, how he so quickly, not centuries later, but mm-hmm. within the first decade, is already being hailed as Lord of the world mm-hmm. and, and got the God of Israel in the flesh. I mean, how is that possible? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the great question. In, of a, in the context of a political power and presence of Rome that was absolutely, totally overwhelming in many ways. Oh, yeah. And so, um, uh, and, yet, and yet people were drawn to him and saying, no, it's not. It's not the guy in Rome, you know. It, it, They're saying this crucified it, man is Lord, not Caesar, yeah, who yeah. has all the power. Yeah, I mean, you look I at mean, that initially, incredible. and you go, "That's got to be crazy." But, but, and it's of course, true. the Caesars were bowing down to Jesus yes. within about three hundred years. <laughs> well, the line I like to use the, son of God, the, the, yes. the line I like to use is that everyone knows who Jesus is, and now Nero is the name for a dog. That's right. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> exactly, I do like that. That's right. I need to bring my dog. Yeah, but especially Nero. We should pick on Nero. Yeah, think, that's right. He's, exactly. He's pretty bad. Yeah, no, nah, he's he is yeah. kind of an antichrist. Say, but there yeah. are Dalmatians. He's, he's worthy. <laughs> yeah. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy tomorrow. Yeah. So. Well, a fascinating conversation. So, so let's let's kind of loop around. We've kind of done some of these. I mean, we could do many many more, but I, I think we've kind of given the feel for what. Well, let me give one more. I can't. I can't. I had one this. I wanted to. Get, okay, go ahead. I don't know. Maybe the same one, but I just love. It's not actually what Jesus does, but it's the way Mark and really all the Gospels present Jesus because they all begin with bringing in the world of Isaiah of Isaiah forty mm-hmm. as. John the Baptist is preparing, and they quote Isaiah 40, mm-hmm. verse 3, mm-hmm. he's preparing the way for the Lord. And of mm-hmm. course, again, yeah. if you go back to the text of Isaiah 40, it's preparing the way for Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And who is John the Baptist preparing the way for? He's preparing the way for Jesus. And I think mm-hmm. that, I mean, right off the bat, in Mark, in the earliest gospel, I think we have, really, if you go deep into that text, yeah, it's yeah. subtle, mm-hmm. but I think you have the same as before Abraham is I am. No, I, had I, mean, a I think that's incredible. I had a different one, and that is, you know, who gets to mess with the temple? Oh yeah. Okay. Mm. The temple cleansing. You know, what that's gives him the authority? Too. You could say, you could say, well, that's just a prophetic act. But really, it's not a prophetic act because no. he entered into the city before he went to the temple on the back of a donkey, claiming mm. to bring a kingdom as its king. Okay. And the first wow. thing he does when he enters the capital is to go to the temple 
and assert his authority over the temple, to challenge the way in which the temple is being operated. I mean, he really goes to the heart mm-hmm. of what Judaism – there's only one temple in Second Temple Judaism yeah. and, and does its thing. I, I, I see – I don't know what you think, but I think it's also similar to Isaiah 40. It's the fulfillment of Malachi 3, mm-hmm. verse 1, where yes. it says, the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. I mean, the Jews were waiting, for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. God's going to somehow return. What's this going to look like? It actually looked like an incarnation, and he actually walked into that temple. I mean, now, I think that's fulfillment to Mount this, this This is one that has that ambiguity to it that I talked to be- talked about before, which is it can kind of work in either you – you can put your weight on either foot. You mm-hmm. know, there's a messianic foot or there – who has a – who has the authority the, – the way to make the more divine point of it is, who has the authority to mess with and define yeah. the sanctity of God's temple, yeah. yes. God himself? Yeah, putting those okay. together. You can put yeah. those together. But but the point is some of these are designed to be um, kind of a both and. Um, yeah. They're, they're designed to show how they play on both sides because Jesus is he making is. for people the transition from the earth up. Okay. He's the Messiah, but he's something so much more. It's more. Or another way to say it is he's the Messiah, but what kind of person is the Messiah? Yeah. Okay. And he's and right. he's pushing that side of it. And this whole second half of Jesus' ministry is pushing in the one hand, it's yes, he's gonna suffer. You weren't expecting that of the Messiah, but the other half of it is he's gonna be exalted. And you probably may not have been expecting that of the Messiah, at least in right. the way God's gonna exalt him out of this. So so there's a huge package deal here. Uh, I, have a, I have a fascinating quote. Uh, R.T. France has not written as many books as our host, Dr. Buck, <laughs> but he's well known for his commentaries. Mm-hmm. This is out of an old book, uh, uh, I Came to Set the Earth on Fire, mm-hmm. Portrait of Jesus, mm-hmm. three or four sentences. Okay. One remarkable feature of Jesus' teachings as the Gospels recorded is how much he talks about himself and what staggering claims these sayings involve. He called men to believe in him, to trust him. He demanded their uncompromising allegiance to himself and declared that the criterion of their final judgment would be their response to him. He sent them out in his name. He gave them power and protection. He forgave sins and invited the distressed Come to me, and I will give you rest. In one remarkable passage, he pictured himself as the judge of all nations, sitting as king on his throne and pronouncing eternal judgment on the basis of what men had done to him. Yeah. With his humility, Amen. all his authority that, as well. That, that's amazing. You know, the, the, the in his name is an important idea because if you think again, think put it – Put it in a Jewish context. Mm. There's only one name yeah. that's involved in the business of deliverance. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's only one person who who is the object of devotion. This is a monotheistic religion, and yet religious. You know, he he commissions uh, the end of Matthew. He commissions people to go out and baptize people yeah. in His name. Mm. Okay, in the name of the Father, the Son. And the spirit that tells you something, That's right? And so, um, yeah. you know, one of the fascinating parts of this, and, and we're, our time has vanished. Um, one of the fascinating parts of this is how many different ways Jesus does this this way. He reveals who he is 
by what he says or by what he does. And if you understand the context of what it is that he is evoking, then you will get what he is doing and saying. Mm -hmm. In fact, he's saying who he is by what he does. Mm -hmm. And in that, we come to see who Jesus really is. Well, I thank you all for taking the time to help us explore this idea. And we welcome you back to the table and hope you'll come to see us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind. From mentoring one woman to leading a ministry, browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.